Welcome to This Means War, a podcast that looks at contemporary conflict, at how wars are being fought around the world today and what this might mean for the future. I'm Peter Roberts, your host, ensconced in a subterranean warren on the south coast of the UK. With a background in wars and warfare, I wanted to dig a bit deeper into the current conflicts around the world and get a sense over how the protagonists were fighting. Now you can pick some of this up from mainstream media, more still in specialist journals and online content, but most of this is usually limited by the word count their authors are allowed or the airtime editors will give to journalists in any one segment. So on this show, we plan on delving a bit deeper into what this all means, what it means for us now and how it might shape the future of warfare. The show is sponsored by Raytheon UK and is a production for The Wavell Room. Check out their website for more in-depth military discussion at www.wavellroom.com. The global public was, for the first two months anyhow, much taken with the events in Ukraine after Russia invaded with a series of conventional military operations. Whilst it appears that interest might now be waning all around the world, but especially in the West, the idea that populations not involved in the conflict would be interested, as they were, was unusual. Since 2003, there are or have been more than 100 wars around the world. Few of these feature in mainstream journalism, fewer still in the examination of conflict by military force designers in the West. From Mali to Pakistan, China to Timor, Latin America to Baluchistan, people are fighting with sniper rifles, rockets and heavy machine guns, if not always using tanks, artillery and fast air. The Western debate and narratives over armed force are, by contrast, limited to those that feature their own troops, the latest high-tech weaponry or potentially impact on their own economic prosperity. Yet by failing to examine the fullest possible spectrum of contemporary military conflict, there are powerful lessons that are being ignored. Worse still, the old biases and heuristics of Western militaries are being reinforced by the selective case studies used in their own benchmarking of what future conflict will look like. Let me give you an example. Since the 1980s and as recently as 2020, Official security reviews considered it inconceivable that a terrorist group would be able to acquire, let alone manufacture or even use complex weapons, especially those that had significant range, accuracy or effectiveness. They were considered, well, just too complicated and sophisticated to be used by small bands of determined insurgents. Yet that's exactly what's happened over the past five years in Yemen with the Houthis evolving from a terrorist group to one that is able to launch medium-range ballistic missiles at Riyadh. And it's worth digging into this a little more. Now, the conflict in Yemen is something you might be aware of. You might even know about the parties involved, the familiar discussion over provision of weapons to the belligerents and where they come from. You might also know about the attacks on Saudi's critical national infrastructure that the Houthis were able to conduct with surprising accuracy using a variety of drone and missile strikes. But how they, the Houthis, got there is the real story and one that has significant implications for Western militaries today and in the future. Just a few years ago, the war in Yemen looked like one of the most intractable conflicts in the world. After years of brutal fighting, the country had disintegrated into a cheese board controlled by different groups armed by an array of external actors, Iran, Saudi Arabia and the UAE to name but three. None of these groups seemed willing to make the concessions that would enable a ceasefire or end the conflict. Many of Yemen's cities were under siege. The main international airport in the capital, Sana'a, was closed to commercial flights and the main port was effectively blockaded, limiting the fuel that could be imported. 
Add to that the lack of food, rocketing inflation, the collapse of the national currency, and it was a recipe for one of the worst humanitarian crises in the world today. Amazingly, at the moment, there's a ceasefire, not just one that's held in place, but has actually been extended. And with the UN envoy seeking to broaden the truce between parties. Yet, even if this is an unexpected peace, it is certainly a fragile one. Over 14 years, neither side has had preeminent control. Indeed, throughout the conflict, both sides had the upper hand at some point. As recently as late 2020, the Houthis appeared to be almost in control of the oil, gas and electricity production area in Yemen's northern region, a critical moment for the Houthis. But in early 2022, the UAE led a defence that halted that attack and inflicted considerable losses on the Houthis, something that was perhaps instrumental in bringing them to the negotiating table. Most recently, fighting in this war has resembled a very modern one, not perhaps the scenes of terrorist technicals in the desert that many would expect. Sophisticated, long-range missiles were being used by both sides. Tanks and air power started to feature. Economic blockades were in place. Attacks on oil production and refining facilities several hundred miles from the front line were all in evidence. This was no longer the local war fought in one country by local parties, but had become a proxy war between Saudi Arabia and its allies and Iran, fought by third parties. Neither the Yemen government nor the Houthis could have foreseen their military capabilities become this impressive this quickly. Neither was it predicted by intelligence services in the West. To explain this journey, I'm joined today by Dr. Michael Knights, who is the senior fellow with the military and security program at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. Mike has travelled extensively in Yemen since 2006, including periods embedded with a variety of security forces. He visited all the Houthi front lines during his recent research trips. Mike, welcome to the show. So let's start with the evolution of the Houthis, which I think is a really important facet that you don't hear about enough. Can you help us understand how this came about? Yeah, certainly. It's been a fascinating uh, trip for me, understanding them, because when I first encountered the Houthis in Yemen in the mid-2000s, they were halfway through what we call the Six Wars, which were six wars fought between this Houthi clan of northern tribesmen and the Yemeni government. So this was before the Arab Spring in 2011, when we were still dealing with the old Yemeni government. And there were six wars between the state and the Houthis. And in those wars, the Houthis did pretty well, and they were in many ways the victims lodged in the northern highlands, surrounded by federal forces, bombarded in their villages. And they gradually got better and better at guerrilla warfare until the point where in 2009, they actually also did some small invasions into Saudi Arabia next door, who were seen to be supporting the Yemeni government. So the Houthis underwent an evolution from very basic guerrilla warfare force to something beginning to approach the sophistication of Lebanese Hezbollah in its early days fighting the Israelis. But then we saw the big change between that war, the last of the six wars in 2009, and the current war, which began in 2015. Between those two dates, the Houthis essentially exploited the chaos created by the Arab Spring, the collapse of the central government in Yemen in 2011-2012, And they also exploited significant and growing support from
from Iran's Revolutionary Guard Corps and Lebanese Hezbollah. When you put those things together, they basically began to not only receive powerful external advising and assisting and equipping, but they also undertook a rolling program of state capture in which they started to absorb the conventional armed forces of the Yemeni state as they disintegrated and became the owners of surface-to-air missile systems, tanks, artillery pieces, precision rocket systems like the SS-21 Scarab and other types of uh, weapon systems. So we saw a small guerrilla movement become a small state in about a five-year period. And we saw a movement that went from being able to throw a decent roadside bomb in 2009 to being able to throw medium-range ballistic missiles at Riyadh by 2016, which by anyone's standards is a very rapid development. Since the war started, the new war started in Yemen in 2015 when the Houthis tried to basically overrun the whole country, We've seen the Houthis use medium-range ballistic missiles, cruise missiles, uh, convert surface-to-air missiles into short-range ballistic missiles, use a variety of drones, including long-range strategic drones able to strike, you know, 1,500 kilometers out, very accurate tactical ballistic missiles that can put a very heavy warhead within three meters of a target at 150 kilometers range. We've seen them use advanced Iranian-built anti-shipping missiles, combat divers, drone boats, naval mine warfare. We've seen them undertake guerrilla air defense using converted anti-aircraft missiles that have been turned into surface-to-air missiles. We've seen them use new virtual radar receivers that can track aircraft by their transponders. We've seen them develop electro-optical guidance systems that can spot an aircraft by its visual or thermal signature. And we've seen them also undertake pretty effective offensive patrolling and offensive mine warfare quite deep into Saudi Arabia, sometimes 10, 15 kilometers into Saudi Arabia. We've seen them throw literally thousands of drones and rockets into Saudi Arabia. And, you know, all of this has been a combination of natural evolution of their force, but more importantly, state capture, and a very busy advise-assist program by the Iranians and Lebanese Hezbollah. If anything, the war in Yemen in many ways feels a bit like the Spanish Civil War, and you might uh, characterize the Iranian and Lebanese Hezbollah advise-and-assist effort almost like the Condor Legion that Germany sent down there to test out many new technologies that would be used in its own wars to follow. That's very much what the Iranians have been doing in terms of technical innovation, testing, and fielding of new weapon systems in the Yemen war since 2015. That's a massively comprehensive answer. Can I go back right to the start? So I just want to set something in a bit of context. I was reminded when you were talking about the evolution of them in, in guerrilla warfare up until about 2009, of the evolution of the Tamatagas of Elam, who were a organic homegrown terrorist group they spearheaded to many people how you do suicide bombs but they did it without any external 
advice at all. So it was very much homegrown. And, and to counterinsurgency experts around the world, it perplexed them how these people could come up with sophisticated insurgency tactics and processes that won them a lot of ground. Is this the same with the Houthis? Did the Houthis have pre-2009 advise and assist presence from externals or was it very much organic that their own way of developing stuff given the circumstances they were in? I think we can see from about 2008-2009 onwards that in particular Lebanese Hezbollah took an interest in Houthi ground warfare capabilities. The Houthis and Lebanese Hezbollah had always had a reasonably strong connection. The, the Houthis, who are basically a Shiite sect called the Zaydis, that's where they sit on the sectarian spectrum. And they looked to Lebanese Hezbollah for advice and an example. And for instance, they hosted the television stations out of Beirut, the Al Manar station. So it was natural that. Lebanese Hezbollah would help them to undertake a border war against Saudi Arabia, which is almost the exact mirror image of the Lebanese Hezbollah border war against Israel. And we can see that the way Lebanese Hezbollah taught the Houthis to develop elite commando formations that could undertake aggressive patrolling, offensive mine warfare, use of advanced roadside bombs like explosively formed penetrators, armor-piercing devices, we can see that they basically built themselves in the model of Lebanese Hezbollah. So that was very clear mirror imaging from Lebanese Hezbollah. In terms of the long-range strike capabilities, we can see that Iran essentially provided these to the Houthis to the extent where one might almost question definitionally whether this is a Houthi capability, or whether it's actually a hosted Iran-backed capability. One of the things that you can see whenever Iran has a proxy relationship with an armed force is that it begins to splinter the original partner force into elements that are more resistant to Iran's influence or less resistant to Iran's influence. Often, for instance, it will identify individuals who feel that they have been overlooked or that for some reason they're not given the credit they deserve or not given the support that they need. Subordinate commanders, for instance, those who may not be part of the, so to speak, royal family of the Houthi clan, but instead are distant affiliates or lesser families. Those are the people that the Iranian advisor assist effort tends to prioritise for engagement and develop them out in terms of skills and provide them with additional funding and weapon systems. And often it will develop those elements out as the employers of the most advanced provided weapons, such as, for instance, medium-range ballistic missiles, long-range drone systems, advanced anti-shipping missiles, and so on. And does this then cause a... a, a a break in the power dynamic, specifically for the Houthis, I guess, because they will have, in my Western indoctrinated mind, they'd have a command structure and obviously having this splinter group, which is not exactly a splinter group, but they're sort of disenfranchised who are sponsored by Iran in a slightly different way with these great new capabilities. Does that bring about additional tensions within their own structure? Yes, every clan-based militia type movement will have a lot of personality politics inside it particularly if there's some kind of 
differentiation between a caste system, shall we say, between a, a leadership cadre who may be linked as family members to the, the top people in the organisation and followers who are not part of the family system. Now, the Houthis are very smart about intermarriage as a way of melding together these systems. But even so, there are deep schisms within any kind of insurgent or militia movement, and the Iranians are expert at exploiting that. I've seen them do it in Lebanon, and then I've seen them do it in Iraq again. And the most recent place we see them do it really is in Yemen. Now, just going back to those missiles, I'm really interested that you say, is this a Iranian-hosted capability? There's been some reporting that actually the re-engineering of missiles specifically and the use of cruise missiles, I think it was against long-range targets in the UAE, where they were used, it was almost a thousand miles or a thousand kilometers that these were traveling. But that was actually performed by local engineers. This would be part of the state capture engineering team, I'm assuming. Do you give any credence to that? Or do you think it's all Iranian engineering that has done that? So in Yemen, there was a cadre of engineers, military engineers trained by the Soviets, who could operate Scud missile systems, SA-2, surface-to-air missile systems, and some older anti-shipping missiles. And it's feasible that those kind of engineers over time could take what exists within the country, could meld it with new open source technologies, GPS, et cetera, et cetera, and create new strategic strike systems. But what's interesting about Yemen, which points towards a very strong advise assist effort from the Iranians, is that most of the new weapon systems were very rapidly evolved and did not demonstrate a learning process. In other words, it wasn't a case that they came in, made a really poor medium-range ballistic missile, and then that got better and it got better and it got better. No, uh, they came straight in with what looked like a complete design uh, that worked first time. And that's very unlikely to happen within an indigenous development system. One of the interesting things about Iran's advise-assist efforts across a number of environments is that it is tailored to each environment. If it's Bahraini militants that they're backing, they will be creating small covert cells that can operate in a highly surveilled environment and that has to maintain a maritime line of supply because it's an archipelago. If they're operating in Iraq, they have very secure lines of supply. They're building out large conventional, semi-conventional armed forces, and that's not difficult for them. In Yemen, they have to operate on an extremely long supply line through a naval and aerial blockade, and they have to use what they can find inside the country. And so what they've done when they tailored their advisor assist effort to Yemen was to initially use all of the weapon systems that they could find inside the country and repurpose them. So, for instance, take all the SA-2 surface-to-air missile systems and turn them into a short-range ballistic missile called the Kahir-1. And this is an exact replica of how the Iranians converted their own SA-2s into the Tondar-69 surface-to-surface missile system. They also took their scuds apart, the remaining scuds in the country, and they extended their range by lengthening their fuselage and adding new fuel, and also by lightening the warhead size and changing the trim of the missile. 
Now, some of that could be done by their own missile engineers, especially as they did to have the odd Belarusian and Russian and so on sitting around Iraqi that they could use. But what we also saw the Iranians doing was to bring in entire missile systems, such as the Qayyam-2. And what's interesting about the Qayyam-2, which is the missile the Houthis used to hit Riyadh, is that the Qayyam-2 basically did not exist before the Yemen war. In other words, it's not just the case of the Iranians providing a missile system to the Houthis that they had. It's of them building a missile system for the Houthis that was intermediate between two range bands to give them just enough range to hit Riyadh from their launch sites. So it's kind of bespoke, advise, assist, train and equip. And for instance, the Iranians would bring in individuals who could do the precision welding to enable a lengthened cruise missile to be shipped in in pieces and then reassembled inside Yemen. We know that because the UN panel of experts on Yemen can trace welding patterns in the Houthi-used Qayyam-2 missiles to other types of missile systems used by Iran in other environments, very specific fingerprint, so to speak, of a specialized welder. And what's interesting about all of this is it's not just the technology and the equipment that they're bringing, but they're also helping them, I guess, with how to fight, right? So you talked a little about the coastal warfare, they're talking about the coastal threat that they're able to now depose. But there's also actually the execution of the long-range strikes has become pretty sophisticated, right? It combined ballistic missile strikes, drone strikes, multiple axes of attack offset from the origin with almost a simultaneous time on target to swamp local air defences. You've got massive use of drones. You've got mine warfare. The how you fight has been a really important part of this assist mission from the RGC, right? Yes, and the Yemen war has provided this Spanish civil war type environment where you can test out numerous new technologies, but also tactical approaches as well. So, you know, for instance, the Houthis have demonstrated the capability of killing Yemeni military leadership on numerous occasions now. Now, they can conduct precision decapitation of their opponents at ranges of around 150 kilometers. That's a pretty amazing thing for a sub-state group, a militia group, uh, to be able to undertake. Additionally, they uh, are able to hit Saudi Arabia's strategic infrastructures as far away as the Arabian Gulf. Now, what that means is that the Houthis are able to, at least in terms of their propaganda, match Saudi Arabia blow for blow. If Saudi Arabia hits Sana'a, the capital of Yemen, and kills Houthi leadership target, the Houthis can fire a rocket back at a royal uh, court headquarters in Riyadh in Saudi Arabia. It might not be as destructive. It might not be exactly as accurate. But the fact is, here we have them punching back on a like-for-like -like basis. If the Saudis close the airspace of Yemen, the Houthis will shut down a number of airports in southwest Saudi Arabia for years on end with their drone and long-range rocket attacks. If the Saudis uh, blockade Yemen, do a naval blockade, the Houthis will begin to attack Saudi oil export facilities on the Arabian Gulf using drones and missiles, and in the Red Sea using drone boats, mines, and uh, anti-shipping missiles. So it's kind of allowed a sub-state actor 
to at least claim to have a sort of parity of strategic attack capability to one of the world's best funded militaries, the Saudis, for instance. And they've also learned to operate in pretty unpleasant circumstances. I mean, you've described it before as tactical atomization, right? But this ability to operate and learning to operate a new modus operandi for operating under enemy air superiority. They have no air power as such, the Houthis in any way, shape or form. But what they have been able to do is continue to operate under enemy air superiority and operate in a very different way, right? Absolutely. One of the most interesting things, spending a bunch of time with the soldiers who are fighting the Houthis, Yemenis, Emiratis, Saudis and others, is understanding the Houthi tactical model, which is kind of mind-blowing when you've grown up looking at platoons, companies, battalions, because really the Houthi tactical unit is three men and sometimes it's one man. And I'll give you an example. So, you know, to be able to cope with constant air supremacy, constant drone surveillance and precision warfare capabilities of their enemies, the Houthis have developed remarkably small tactical units. So, for instance, one Houthi soldier will defend a multi-foxhole fighting position. And in each one of these foxholes, which are connected through underground tunnels, he will have a weapon system. It could be a recoilless rifle, a heavy machine gun, a sniper rifle, an AK, a mortar. And he will run from one to the other, utilizing those weapon systems. Likewise, if he's in an urban environment, he'll have a number of firing positions with a weapon prepositioned at it. And moving between those positions, he'll look like any other civilian. That man will stay in those fighting positions until he dies. And they're very determined. He will be, in some cases, supported by remote resupply. For instance, they have these kind of mortar systems that fire canisters of food, dried raisins, drugs like captagon to keep them alert and fighting, water, dehydrated milk, baby milk formula, well, oh, and of course, cat, chewable narcotic. They have everything that they need in these resupply containers. It's almost like they're resupplying astronauts with astronaut food. And they will fire them up onto the mountaintop position so that the Houthi soldiers, for instance, don't have to come down to get their resupply. So they can't be tracked back to their individual fighting position. So, you know, that's your individual fighting position. 10, 15 kilometers will be just a mass of these little individual fighting complexes, you might call them. And when they're resupplied, the Houthis will never move tactically, or very rarely anyway, in groups of larger than the three. Why? Because three very skinny Houthi fighters can fit onto a trail bike. And that trail bike, where they look just like civilians, can move over any terrain, is hard to hit. And, you know, that's the, as big a unit as they're going to show the Saudis typically. I mean, there's a million interesting things about these guys, but I've characterized them as a fascinating opponent impressive and also in many ways repugnant you know they can go at the highest levels of sophistication with medium-range ballistic missiles drone warfare anti-shipping warfare but they also still undertake many of their traditional modes of warfare like hostage taking use of child soldiers and also taking civilians and basically selling them back to their families for for instance a container of gasoline so their line of supply will be assured by the fact that they're taking civilian hostages. 
pets and so on. They also extensively booby trap all the environments they're in, with particular effort to kill civilians. And I never really fully understood why they did that, but I suspect the Houthis have got a bit of a grudge against all other elements of Yemeni society that didn't really care if they were being rocketed and starved up on the hilltops during the first six wars before 2015. It feels like what you're describing is similar to the way that General Krulak of the US Marine Corps used to describe the West version of the strategic corporal, right? You know, one person having a massive effect on the environment. You know, the strategic corporal meant that the West had to value every single individual because each of them was really important. What are the Houthis like in terms of their resilience to losses? Do they care about their people? Do they not worry about it? If they ever have to deliver mass, they've got to pull people together, right? How do they balance those two things? That's a great question. The Houthis are very callous about losses. They recruit from Yemen's very large community of poor, undereducated, completely unemployed uh, civilians. They will buy uh, children off of families who are starving and then use them, bring them up through their education camps, their kind of indoctrination camps, and develop them. Houthi soldiers are generally very ill-informed about what's happening to them. When they would be captured, for instance, they would ask the Yemeni soldiers who captured them, where are the Israelis? Where are the Americans? I thought we were fighting them. Or they would say, I thought we were here to fight Al-Qaeda. Who are you? So, you know, they would be kept in almost complete isolation. So indoctrination is a very important part, use of child soldiers, use of drugs like Captagon, is a big part of, of what they do. They don't invest a lot in the individual man. I mean, they will not even, in many cases, save a wounded soldier. They don't see that as worth it. They are at the higher end of brutality, you know, that scale of brutality. What they do, however, do is to develop out their elite formations. Some of those do the light infantry warfare against Saudi Arabia, including rendering an entire swathe of the Saudi-Yemeni border uninhabitable to Saudis. There's large amounts of very fertile farming ground in southwest Saudi Arabia that have been fenced off now for over 10 years and have become essentially like a no man's land where Saudis cannot farm, cannot live. They also, of course, develop out a certain cadre of drone assembler, and other technical specialists who they do value a great deal. And their tactical commanders, they value a great deal too. They are what we call the Houthi Houthis. And that means they are a Houthi who actually is from the Houthi clan, who's up there you know, from the north of Sada province, the Houthi home province. And those individuals are, are trusted and they are developed both by the Houthi movement and by the Iranians and Lebanese as well. And they're often very smart and tactical, but very, very ruthless. You know, they will abandon an entire unit and simply go back and get another unit. They would never stay and fight to death with their troops. What I'm trying to stress here is that you can have a force that has accepted the advisor assist of an advanced military nation like Iran or like Lebanese Hezbollah and can use a host of new weapons systems in very sophisticated ways. And yet it doesn't lose its basic values and cultural features 
that it had before that advisor assist experience began. And it feels to me like the Iranians aren't tying the Houthis' hands with the need to conform to whatever standards they're putting in place in terms of religious protocols or economic performance levels or human rights or anything else. They're really just doing it because what they get out of it is a really good test and evaluation area. It furthers their aims against their great competitor in the region in Saudi. I mean, there's a variety of things they get out of it, right? Uh, precisely. And, the, you know, for the Iranians, this is the creation of a southern Hezbollah. And the same way that you have Hezbollah on Israel's northern flank sitting on the, at the northern end of the Suez Canal and the eastern Mediterranean, this creates a Hezbollah on the Babel Mandeb at the southern edge of the Suez Canal on the Indian Ocean, on the Arabian Peninsula. But they don't expect this southern Hezbollah to be exactly the same as the northern Hezbollah. They are willing to wait to build their influence within the southern Hezbollah the way they did within the northern Hezbollah, which was more independent originally. So the Iranians are in it for the long term. And they don't have any one particular model that they're going to impose on their partner forces, which is what makes them so capable of operating in so many different types of environment from Iraq to Syria to Lebanon to Yemen to Gaza to Afghanistan. I've got to say that the threat that they pose from the Bebel Mandeb to international shipping, world commerce, global trade and economics is absolutely phenomenal. But it's not linked to that in terms of where they've been doing things slightly differently. You talked a while ago about the sort of softer side of what they were able to do, in particular the sort of strategic influence operations, say, for example, with US Congress. Yeah, and what I saw throughout the Yemen war since 2015 was that the Houthis were very effective at information operations, at influence operations, and with a particular focus on the English-speaking and European markets. In particular, they played into the David and Goliath feel of the Yemen war, in which you know the Gulf states looked to be the bigger and the more powerful, and the Houthis looked to be a small rebel movement. They also played into all of the broader atmospherics around declining US-Saudi relations, killing of Jamal Khashoggi, and all these kind of dynamics. What they ultimately did was to develop the United States Congress and the United Nations and the international humanitarian organizations as their primary line of strategic defense. So, for instance, in 2018, when the coalition, primarily the United Arab Emirates, were well positioned to take all of the Houthi ports from them on the Red Sea coast, the Dada Salif, and landlock the Houthis away from external resupply and basically make them a non-viable state. We saw the international community, particularly the United Nations humanitarian organizations and US Congress, prevent that operation from completing. The Houthis couldn't militarily block the UAE-backed Yemeni forces from taking the Red Sea coast and eliminating that threat to the Babel Mandeb and the Red Sea. So instead, they undertook what you would call political warfare which proved to be 100% effective. The Emiratis ultimately came under so much pressure that they halted 
the uh, Red Sea campaign, and the United Nations took over in a, uh, a kind of a mediation process that basically has gone nowhere, and the Houthis still control the Red Sea coast. Mike, that was awesome. Thanks for your time and thanks for sharing your expertise, as eloquent as ever, and, and left with lots to ponder. I guess what I'm left with is as we talk so much about Ukraine and the experience of that one war, we need to be deeply sceptical about assumptions that that one war translates into the singular vision of the future of warfare. As the West talks about trained assist missions, it's not solely the preserve of NATO forces, that is clear. And the way that the IRGC, that the Iranians and Lebanese Hezbollah have shaped and developed this capability in less than five years to give them sophisticated parity in military terms with a first world state military is something that people, I think, need to be aware of. The enemy does train and assist. They perhaps do it better than us because it's about how you fight as well as with what in their eyes. And that makes this, for me, a very important lesson. Military power, land power specifically in this case, can only be seen as relative to the opponent, never an absolute. And that makes this a really important case study to have at the back of our minds whenever we think about the future of warfare and force design. You can read more from Mike in his excellent article, which I cannot recommend enough. It's in The Sentinel from 2018. It's called The Houthi War Machine. You can also follow him on Twitter at Mike Knights Iraq, which again is really worth doing. I hope you enjoyed our show. Do subscribe, leave a rating and a review on any of your podcast streaming channels. These really help us to shape content, our approach and reach new audiences. Please also send us your suggestion about topics, or conflicts or even speakers you'd like to see us cover or have on the show. We've got a packed schedule over the coming months, but we'll certainly respond to your demands. Email me on thismeanswar at wavelroom.com. The show is produced by Kieran Yates and Joe Bundo and is sponsored by Raytheon UK. It's a production for The Wavel Room, the home of intellectual curiosity and challenging thinking for British military professionals.